K-A-L-W. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Round the world and back again. Folk tales and stories are handed down generation to generation. You heard true stories, family stories, ghost stories. I mean, African-Americans, we first came to America, we had to be totally oral. <laughs> we weren't even allowed to read or write. So what if you want to tell your cultural folk tales today to a new generation of diaspora children? There are lots of questions. Are these stories mine to tell? Should I be telling them? Should they be translated to English? If they're oral, should I even be writing them down? What about the tales that are outdated, not politically correct anymore? Once Upon a Problem, an episode of The Stoop Podcast, today on Cross Currents. I'm Suni Khalid, in for Hana Baba. Today, we're presenting an episode from The Stoop Podcast, hosted by Hana Baba and Leela Day. It's a personal episode for Hana. Folktales are a big part of her life. Her great-grandmother was a storyteller. She lived all over Sudan, traveled with her husband all over the country, and collected stories in her head. Then Hana's aunts, mom, and uncle memorized those stories and told them to her. Now she wants to write a folktale book retelling these stories, but there's a lot she's unsure of. We explore what it means to be next in line to preserve your family's stories in this episode, Once Upon a Problem. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Lila. So, Lila, this is my auntie. Her name is Suhair. What is she saying? She's telling a folk story. It's a story about a girl named Fatma and her brother, Hassan. And one day, Hassan was out hunting for food, and he caught a big bird for dinner. But the bird was actually a king who was cursed by a witch. Then the bird cries out to his daughter to rescue him. So, Hana, I've heard you talking about this for a long time now, this Sudanese folktale project. Mm-hmm. Why is it taking so long? What's going on? What are you waiting for? What's the deal? I know, I know. Okay, well, you're not alone. Many people in my Sudanese community are waiting for this book. And it's because the need is real. There are thousands of families here in America, in Canada, in Australia, in the diaspora. These little Sudanese kids that are born and raised here, they're not going back to Sudan. And so people want to try to preserve the culture. And there's this study that haunts me, Leela. It's by this Sudanese scholar named Maawiyah Muhammad Dafalla. Mm-hmm. In 2015, he surveyed 100 college students in Sudan about what folk tales mean to them. And there was this question he asked, do you think our folk tales will be forgotten? And 77% said yes. I don't want that to happen. Okay, so you feel a duty here, mm-hmm. you know, to write this book about folktales, but you're so hesitant about it. Uh, 
Leela, I'm just realizing it's not easy. And I have a lot of questions that keep me up at night. Are these stories mine to tell? Should I be telling them? Should they be translated to English? If they're oral, should I even be writing them down? What about the tales that are outdated and not politically correct anymore? Okay, Hannah, stop. That is a lot to think about. Calm the mind, calm the soul, calm it down. I know. And Leela, there's this other thing. This big secret I learned about some of our folktales, and it's making me question if I should pass them on or not. So I really needed to talk this out with some folks just to help me figure this out. People to be my guides, other storytellers. Hambone, hambone, where you been? Hambone, hambone, where you been? Round the world and back again. Okay, Leela, so I'm eating banana bread at the dining table of Diane Frelat in Oakland. She's a storyteller. She grew up in Louisiana, and she tells African-American folktales like this one, Hambone. And it's call and response, and I just can't help but join in. Hambone, Hambone, where you been? Nowhere. Nowhere. Nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. Now, my family has loved Miss Diane for over a decade. We have all her story CDs. We go to all her live shows. And I knew I wanted to talk to her because she grew up with the kind of stories that were told, not read. The kind that were passed down from generation to generation, like ours. And being born in Louisiana, everybody had a front porch. People sat on the front porch talking about this and that and each other and the neighbors. and <laughs> You heard true stories, family stories, ghost stories. I mean, African-Americans, when we first came to America, we had to be totally oral. <laughs> we weren't even allowed to read or write. We have a strong oral tradition. And a lot of times we couldn't say how we felt, you know, what we wanted to do, what we wanted to accomplish in life. We couldn't say those things. And what upset us, we couldn't get it out. But a lot of those feelings came out in our stories. The storytelling isn't just about passing down culture. This is about survival. Right. And I totally get that. But I still had this sort of lingering voice in my head that kept asking, who owns the rights to telling these stories? Do I have that right? Yeah, but sometimes they end up being written by white people who hear them told. And you can't tell our stories. We have to tell those stories ourselves. And I think when somebody else tells your story, it's not good. And so a lot of African-American storytellers, we started, it was back in 83, I think, we started the National Black Storytelling Festival. And uh, a lot more Black storytellers coming up to tell these stories because they need to be told. But it's how we tell them and also who we tell them to. So basically she's saying that if you don't tell them, someone else will. Someone who is not even from the culture. So you have to claim them. It's not that you, you're usurping anything or you're stealing something that's from your own culture. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to you wanna hear them. You want to know them. I want my kids to know them. Right. Well, tell them. Yeah, tell them. This is an instrument called inanga, and this is what was always, always played when one is narrating a story. 
My name is Brenda Mutoniwase. I am originally born and raised from Rwanda. The story is about the king, Ruganzu. He was one of the kings in the 19th century in Rwanda. Salila, Brenda is a Rwandan folklore scholar at the University of California, Berkeley. And she's researching folk stories and this idea of archiving them or preserving them. And so it's a story about how how he met a girl on one of his trips um, upcountry and goes ahead to ask for the girl's hand in marriage. Ooh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to talk to Brenda to help me with another question that bothers me. What's that? Well, Lila, these are oral stories. They've always been told and not read. You know, like my uncle used to act out all of these stories, like the sound of a dog or the cackle of the old witch. <laughs> and the little songs in the middle, like I love it, yeah. They're beautiful parts of a story. And it's all oral. So I struggle with this question, like, were these stories ever meant to be written down Mm. in books? I see. And then translated to a whole nother language, like English? I mean, this is a whole different culture, and language is a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And you might lose something there in the translation. So, well, what do you think is the problem? Because many cultures have translations of their literature. What's the difference here? I know, but it feels like taking those stories and then writing them and bringing them to English, the meanings could be totally lost. The slang, the dialect, even nuance and feelings and like... Mm, I know exactly what you mean. Like Zora Neale Hurston, right? When she wrote her iconic book, Barracoon, she based the book on conversations she had with Cujo Lewis who was the last African to be brought to the U.S. on a ship called the Flotilla. And I had read that publishers asked her to write that book in, quote, standard English for the masses. And she refused. She refused to do so. Mm -hmm. She said to understand him, it had to be in his dialect. And that is the way he talked. Right, because she wanted it to be authentic, right? And not to take anything away from it. Mm That's what Brenda's thinking about as part of her research. And there's the expression still. For example, there's an expression that we talk about a lot, especially when telling a story or like just like an exclamation. It's called inhayanje. It translates to my cow. But if you're translating it to someone, they have to have context that cows are very central to Rwandan culture. I remember, like, even when we were listening to these stories as a child, some of the words, we didn't really know what they meant, but the songs were catchy. And that in itself, it left me with something. I didn't understand the words because the context had changed. And Leela, that's what Brenda says we should be extra careful about. Her research is all about how to preserve and archive stories without losing their essence. And she says sometimes with trying to write down oral stories, a lot is lost. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Hannah, if oral stories end up not being written down, then they just go away, right? And Brenda says maybe that's okay. It's always 
constitutive of this colonial logic of capture, um, which we want to hold on to in anxiety and fear that this might run away from us. We may not be able to have it again, da -da 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 -da, so on and so forth. It's okay. I think it is okay. Not all things are supposed to be permanent, especially if they're living, breathing things, which I think stories are. And at the same time, these stories are supposed to be functional. And sometimes their function ends. So it is okay for a story to die with a generation. She says it's still worth trying to preserve parts of folklore. And she's working on ways to create these archives of Rwandan folktales and folk life, but at the same time, making sure to do the culture justice. But it's all about pushing boundaries a little bit, pushing boundaries. How far can we take this um, without losing ourselves in the process? Okay, so Hana, we've heard that, yes, you can tell your stories and you can preserve the tradition. You can stay true to the tradition by making them oral versus writing them down, which happens to be fantastic since you are already an oral storyteller. So I'm thinking you are ready, Hana. You are ready to do this book. You're ready to do this project. You are making a face. What is that about? What is going on? Well, Leela, I haven't talked about the biggest, scariest issue I have that I keep dancing around. The secret, the big elephant in the room. Mm. Is this a folktale? What is the elephant? <laughs> I wish it was a... What's going on? Story about What's an elephant. elephant doing in the room? <sighs> well, you know that story my aunt told at the beginning of the episode... I love it, right? It's so imaginative and it has all these little songs. But there are other kinds of stories I was told growing up that have these secret histories that are disturbing. And I don't know if I should be telling them. Like what? Okay, so like when we were little, they told us this story called The Seven Brothers. They were naughty and they got into all kinds of trouble. It was a silly story, a funny story. They had little adventures and it was hilarious. Mm, this is cute. I like it. But then when we grew up, my aunt finally told us that actually that story isn't called The Seven Brothers like we thought. It's called The Seven Slaves. Why? Why is it called mm -hmm. The Seven Brothers when it's about slaves? Is that what you're saying? Well, a lot of our stories and folklore include slavery. Like, in many parts of the world, Sudan had slavery. And it wasn't like American slavery, like Miss Diane was talking about. This was tribal slavery. So tribes that had power and influence, they'd raid and attack tribes that were more marginalized. And they'd catch people and bring them back to their villages for work. And this history shows up in the stories. Very, very hard to hear. But I mean, if we think about what Miss Diane was saying earlier, we have these sad stories. Mm. But aren't these stories still important to pass down? But Leela, what if your ancestors owned slaves too? Mine did. And so my uncle would tell us these stories and my auntie, Suhair, would always be sitting close by a lot of the time, and she'd interrupt the story and sometimes change it, like change a character. 
and I asked her why she used to do that. Mm. She said, you all were young, and we wanted to not complicate the stories for you. And we wanted to protect you from this horrible thing called slavery. But maybe also we were ashamed because our ancestors participated. Our ancestors owned slaves too. So that's why we changed some of the stories so you wouldn't have to live with that shame. I mean, Hannah, this must have been really hard for you to hear from your aunt, right? I remember I was in college when she first told me about all of this. And that was when I was really, you know, starting to learn about the history of this slavery in Sudan and just in Africa overall, within Africa. All that I'd learned about slavery until that point was that it was this horrible thing that happened. And I remember thinking, how can people enslave people who looked like them? But I hadn't thought about my ancestors being a part of that. Hmm. And it was a lot to think about at the time, you know? I had to come to terms with it and acknowledge my ancestral role in these horrible practices, and it messed me up. Hmm. And the thing is, today, those same privileged tribes, like the ones I come from, they're still privileged. You know, it's different times, but that generational wealth was handed down. And although slavery is outlawed, kind of the remnants still are there. Mm -hmm. Like this hierarchy of tribal supremacy, right? Like, it's led to wars in Sudan and disenfranchisement for so many people in places people have heard of, like Darfur and the Nuba Mountains. And South Sudan, which even chose to break away from Sudan in 2011, partially because of all of this supremacy that led to violence that they've suffered for centuries. I know it's a lot, but this is Mm -hmm. all connected. And now that I'm about to retell some of these stories, it's all coming back up for me. I mean... I grew up with a similar thing, feeling like I'm hearing these stories that I'm supposed to be proud of, but I feel conflicted about it. I mean, we talked about this with the Buffalo soldiers and how they were glorified Black soldiers who fought during the Spanish-American War, but then learning later that they were, you know, paid to capture Indigenous people. But that part of the history was left out when I was growing up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. But coming back to the storytelling, Hannah, it seems that what your aunt did was something Europeans did, for example. I read some literature that scholars were saying in Snow White, the seven dwarves were actually, in the original story, seven child slave workers in the coal mines. You don't hear that in the Disney version. They are cute and funny, and there's no mention of slavery or social class anywhere. Yeah, for sure. I mean, stories change. People make stories more palatable, you know, or take things out that aren't politically correct anymore or straight up erase the bad things their own people did Mm -hmm. because they wanted not to be seen as the bad guys or they were ashamed, like my aunt is saying. But like, is that the right way to approach it, right? Like, is that censoring the truth? And I wanted to talk to Brenda 
about this, you know, the folk scholar, Mm -hmm. because she's from Rwanda. And that's another country that has gone through a lot of trauma and people fighting against their own fellow Rwandans. So if I'm thinking about folklore as a way of materializing culture, inevitably the way we think about stories is going to change as culture changes as well, right? Because change is inevitable. And if a story is changing, if how we think about a particular moral is changing, then that's well and good. But purposefully modifying a story or changing a story to be able to make it palatable to consumers, whether it's children or any kind of demographic, for me, it sounds like a romantic approach to history, which is never a good idea. History is ugly. I mean, history has really ugly aspects to it. There's war, especially in, in places where we're coming from. There's violence, there's tragedy. And all this in, in themselves are part of that historical process that has to be understood, learned in one way or another. These stories have to also be able to reflect that. So Brenda's saying we shouldn't sugarcoat these stories. Even if it's kids listening to these stories and the language we use may be different because we're talking to kids, but that they still got to be told. Kids can teach us a lot about memory. So I think even in this way, in this attempt to protect the innocence of kids, we take so much away from them because we keep constantly undermining how much they can be able to process. And in one sense, it's also our way to evade responsibility So basically what Brenda's saying is that it's our responsibility to give context to these stories. That's what my aunt told me when we talked. In hindsight, she says she wishes they didn't change the stories out of shame so we could have understood the truth. It could be a tool to talk about our complicated history instead of bury it. Okay, Anna. So after all of this, what are you going to do? How are you feeling? Are you going to write this book? First of all, I'm glad I was able to think this through with some people I admire and who are also thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think our stories deserve to be told and live on, and our kids deserve to have them as part of their life experiences. So one thing I've decided, okay, I've decided I'm definitely going to make this an oral audio project. Oh, okay. I like that. That's one thing I've taken away, so not a written book. Another thing is I may sprinkle in some English here and there with the Arabic. Okay. Because I want these little diaspora kids to understand that it's okay to be a part of two different worlds, like my own daughters. I want them to be able to tell them to their kids. That makes absolute sense. Okay, so you're having some revelations here. Now, which stories will I tell? I'm still not sure. It'll probably also depend on the age range of listeners and things like that. But Leela, now I have the thoughtful advice of Miss Diane and Brenda, and they had different thoughts on whether or not you should modify a folktale. Maybe I do include some of the difficult themes, but then I have to explain the historical context. Wherever I land, Leela, I feel stronger now. I feel more confident. And I hope that however this turns out, my aunties, my mom, my uncle Al-Baghir, you know, I hope they can be proud of it. I'm sure they will be. And I can't wait to hear them. Thanks, Leela.
That was an excerpt from Once Upon a Problem, an episode from The Stoop Podcast, hosted by Hana Baba and Leela Day. We've got the full episode up at KALW.org. For Cross Currents, I'm Suni Khalid.